This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Marissa Miller, a journalist and editor covering health, nutrition, fitness, style, beauty, travel tech, and mental health, with work published in the New York Times, Women's Health, GQ, and other outlets. Her latest book, Pretty Weird, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome and Other Oddly Empowering Lessons, was released earlier this year from Skyhorse Books and distributed by Simon & Schuster. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad that you are here. I hope that the questions that I've sorted out for us are, are sufficiently weird to, to fall within your remit. But I'm also looking to you to bring additional oddness um, or, or, or goblinness uh, to, to this conversation. Yeah, I love that you call them weird questions because to me, they're not that weird. They just kind of accurately encompass the human experience. I stand corrected. We're all weird, rendering none of us weird. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, I, I want you to be able to expand uh, my my definition of weirdness today. That's, yeah. that's my main goal is I would just like to leave today with a greater sense of oddity than I, than I entered with. <laughs> and I think that that's a pretty reasonable goal uh, given our shared time together. Sure. I'm very much looking forward to our first question, not least because I love the subject line, and I'm wondering if you'd be so good as to read it for us. Yes. Desperate to scream in public. I recently concluded a very messy divorce that lasted about as long as our marriage. One of the final blows was that my partner lied to all our mutual friends and told them I had had an affair over the entire course of our marriage. I had told them I felt an attraction to someone else and asked them to attend counseling with me. I found this out when he called several of them as witnesses to our divorce trial. I have an excellent therapist who has guided me through this process. I'm coming to terms with the fact that my marriage was emotionally abusive. Professionally, I'm an artist that works in a medium that is heavily centered on storytelling and narrative. A large part of me wants to create a series around my experience of the divorce from my partner and his comfort with destroying me in front of our mutual friends. Another part of me says, don't make a scene. You're so lucky to be free. How can I parse what is publicly appropriate to express about my own experience? You know, it is, uh, I think, a very, very understandable question to think about. I'm very mad about something that happened in my personal life. I'm not sure if uh, the time is right to uh, work through it professionally because I have like creative goals that I think I can achieve or because I think it's the most effective way of like getting my own back. Mm -hmm. And that's um, sort of a timeless question for artists. What were your kind of thoughts here? What do you think is the most important so thing for this? Firstly, I feel like you delved into my brain when you asked me this question because I too am going through a divorce right now. And that was taking place while I was writing my book. So I was sort of at odds with, do I respect my craft as an artist and tell this story? And also how do I protect 
my ex-partner and the the life that we shared together. Uh, one thing I would want to know from this artist is what is her medium of choice because that would give me some insight into how she could tell her story. The beautiful thing about storytelling is that you don't necessarily need to feed the writer explicitly what happened. You can sort of use motifs and symbols to very profoundly and in a compelling way uh, describe your story. And that kind of in, in and of itself makes it more universal because it allows your um, storytelling to feel more universal and it allows readers to kind of pick apart what they want to relate to. So that was one of the things that I was battling with when I was writing my book was, do I want to be a martyr for the book? And do I want to also adhere to actual very real legal contracts that I signed that stipulated to avoid defaming or or slandering my partner. Yeah, I, I think that's always like a great place to at least start, which is not to say that this letter writer is necessarily like so well known and their art is so successful that if they were to create a series, it would immediately like turn into a huge legal court battle. But um, it is always, you know, a great idea if you are even considering incorporating, uh, you know, a recent messy divorce into your publicly available work, have a quick call with a lawyer, check in, ask, you know, what, what should I be looking out for? Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought too, one thing that leapt out at me here was, you know, the sort of final blow was that my partner lied to our mutual friends. It's not clear whether this letter writer has had follow-up conversations with those mutual friends. That, that part seemed a little bit ambiguous to me. So, so mm-hmm. part of what I, I sensed in this was the sort of thought, like, if he hurt me by, you know, misrepresenting uh, our relationship to our friends, one way I could correct the record in sort of one fell swoop is by releasing a, you know, TV show, uh, podcast, series of paintings, whatever, about, you know, the truth. And then I would, you know, maybe get all my friends back on my side or, you know, really highlight how how angry I am with him for for lying. And so, you know, not that that means that you can't make art unless you've had every sort of possible emotional conversation with your friends. But if if part of what you want this potential art series to do is facilitate those conversations with your friends, I would say have those conversations now. Like you don't need to wait to make art about it to say, uh, you know, I'm really hurt and sad and angry that he told you this. That's not what happened. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened. Um, right. which, which doesn't mean that, like, if you have those conversations, then the desire to potentially create art informed by this experience will vanish. Just that, you know, if you want to have that conversation with your friends, you should have that conversation with your friends. Don't make art as a substitute for a conversation. Right. And I'm I'm a big believer in with great power comes great responsibility. So when you're putting something on a platform, know that you do have the final word and it doesn't allow for much um, input from the other side. And it's not that I'm siding or I'm feeling much pathos for her partner because he was abusive according to her story. But I do think there is value in sort of keeping these things, like you said, conversations rather than things that are going on record without very much room for discussion. I, I think so too. You know, I mean, the, the letter writer says, I recently concluded this divorce. It was messy. It lasted about as long as our marriage. I'm just coming to terms with this like new understanding of, of what our relationship was like. So none of this is to say, you know, never 
mention anything connected to divorce or that relationship in your art. You know, keep it personal for the rest of your life. Keep it private for the rest of your life. Just that it it sounds like you are only, you know, towards still the beginning or maybe the intermediate stages of kind of processing everything. Um, and again, not that you have to feel completely finally done and have, have drawn all your neat conclusions before something can show up in your art, but you can always do this later. You know, there's no ticking time bomb where like, if you make art about this in a few years or 10 years or whatever, then it's too late or the story will have expired. So, mm. uh, you know, it, it's not like, oh, it would be inappropriate now. Don't do it. You would be violating decorum. Um, I think that that's not necessarily a necessary framework for this letter writer here. But to say to yourself, I have total freedom to decide when I feel prepared to make art about this. Um, If right now I'm still kind of in the middle of figuring a lot of it out, why don't I revisit this in six months? Mm -hmm. Why don't I revisit it in a year? And ask yourself why you're racing to tell the story now. Like maybe there's something else you need to process. Maybe there's something you still don't understand about the divorce or the situation that you might in a few months from now when the story could be a little bit more valuable to your viewers or your readers or your listeners. Yeah, I I think that's really useful. And again, that doesn't mean that then you will decide, oh, it's not necessary to me. It's not important. But I think you'll feel a little bit more peaceful about whatever decisions that you make. Um, And that, you know, you you don't need to be in the throes of like a, a crisis to make interesting or worthwhile art. Right. And this is a little bit of an unpopular opinion, especially someone like me who's a memoirist, but there are some things that are maybe not worth writing about in that they might re-traumatize you. There are some things that might be better left as part of your past experience. Um, Yeah, there's so many times that I've written about things where I was like, wait, I just feel worse now. And now what's heavily weighing on me is how that person is going to feel about how I've characterized our shared shared moment together or our messy moment. Right. Right. And, you know, know, what's sort of like commonly referred to as the sort of exogene problem, right? Which is just that um, lots of different fields, um, lots of different sort of like artistic fields, sometimes there is like a quick, cheap reward for maximal traumatic disclosure, which is like you just list all the things that happened that hurt you. And, you know, you you sometimes will get a really quick like, thank you for sharing. Uh, that was really brave of you. You know, this made me feel better. And that feels great. And that's not to say that those things are inherently bad, but it can also kind of turn into uh, a feedback loop where it's like, I'll disclose more. You want to hear some other shit he did? It was awful. Um, right. a- and again, that's not to say like never share anything personal, but it, it does mean that you're not necessarily going to hear, you know, anything but wow, you know, directly. Um, mm-hmm. And so that might sort of prejudice you in the direction of maximizing disclosure without premeditation. And For that sure. can sometimes lead to later feeling, I actually wish that everyone didn't see this um, or that I had, you know, held that one in reserve or figured out a way to take the like essence of, of that experience and change the details or change some of the dynamics or change some of the characters so that it wasn't um, so directly uh, referential to my personal life um, so that I could feel a little bit more creative distance between this work mm-hmm. and my actual real life divorce. Right. And the beautiful thing about art, especially storytelling, is that you can infuse your own experience into characters so that you are relinquishing all responsibility from it. You're completely disconnected from it. It is a total coincidence that your 
whole narrative is portrayed among these characters. So that's one way to kind of tell your story in a therapeutic way that's less hurtful to others or that's implicating them to a less severe degree. Um, I do think that when you kind of begin to fall into this habit of exploiting yourself for a story, you you erode at your own boundaries and it prevents people from respecting yours because you're teaching people how to treat you, which is to maybe exploit you the way you have been exploiting yourself. And that's sort of something that I've had to think about. The more I tell about my own stories and my own personal traumas, um, there comes a point where it's like, am I telling this to make myself feel better or to make people listen to me? I I really appreciate uh, your use of the word therapeutic earlier because I think that's a really helpful distinction for the letter writer to think, what are my creative goals? What are my therapeutic goals? What are my personal goals? And to maybe even jot them down so that you get a sense of how they differ from one another. And that's not to say that there will never be points of overlap, but I think it can be really useful to think of your therapy as different from your creative work, as different from your work with your friends and your other relationships so that it's not like uh, they're all three interchangeable. I make art as therapy. I go to therapy as you know a creative process. My friendships yeah. are also my art. Like um, It can be useful to, to know in advance how you will hold those things separately, um, especially because if, if this is also your profession, um, you know, if it's your job that makes you money and keeps the lights on, and it's also your therapy, um, you know, you mentioned earlier various ways of exploiting is one word for it, maybe not like protecting uh, your own sort of like privacy in, in certain moments would be another way of describing it. You know, if it's like, this is the thing that makes me money and the things that gives me a therapeutic benefit, that gets real dicey real fast because mm-hmm. then it's, you know, how do you separate those questions and how do you separate- And so many things in one basket. Exactly. Yeah. And, right. and yeah, so I, I think that it's really useful to say, okay, this is my creative and professional work. This is not the same thing as my therapy. I may find, you know, useful emotional truth in this work that may uh, inform my therapeutic relationship with my therapist, but it's not the exact same thing. They're not interchangeable. So again, none of that's to say never incorporate any of this into your art, you know, put this idea to the side, give it a Viking funeral um, and just do a bunch of motel art or something. Uh, it just means, you know, you can always disclose more later. It's a lot harder to walk back a personal disclosure. And um, you can often find, you know, interesting and invigorating emotional truths in a version uh, of, of events that is not simply a, a, a narrative, like a straightforward autobiography, and then this happened in real life, and then this happened in real life, and now you're looking at it. Um, so, right. No one's asking you to issue a press release on what happened. Yeah. And if you do need with those friends to have some sort of a press release or some sort of a conversation, do that. You have a right to do that. Maybe it feels a little complicated because he got there first, quote unquote, but you can absolutely say like, I would love to talk to you about this. You know, can I call you? Can we meet up for coffee? Right. right. Yeah. And I mean, for her own sort of inner peace, there's value in knowing that you did nothing wrong. And just sitting with that can often be consolation enough, even if she doesn't get the quote unquote last word. If I knew how to advise letter writers such that they could confidently sit back and say, I did nothing wrong, I would be (laughs) swimming in it. Um, Hopefully someday. I'm not there yet, but um, it's always the goal, I suppose. Uh, it's, It's just, you know, Mary Haynes style perfection. 
I will lead us into our second letter, the subject of which is don't go without me. I get really bad FOMO when my partner goes out and drinks or parties without me. This has the potential to get worse since we'll now be living in different cities. I don't want to resent them for having fun without me. I think that's a damaging dynamic. Plus, I want to have fun partying on my own too. But I've always struggled with jealousy issues. And while that's improved a lot, that still comes up sometimes. It's not just jealousy about other people, but of other experiences. My partner and I have very good communication and handle conflict respectfully. We're also polyamorous, which sometimes intersects with my FOMO, but which I overall feel good about. All these feelings have been just as present in past monogamous relationships, by the way. I've torpedoed past romantic relationships and friendships by expressing jealousy and resentment in an unhealthy way. How do I manage these feelings and not put them all on my partner? Wow, so many thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, I I really appreciated this letter writer's self-awareness and like desire not to repeat that old pattern. And I'm so curious about like, I would love to know a little more just for my own curiosity's sake about how that has shown up in like friendships and platonic relationships as well as romantic relationships because I think that's really fascinating. Although we should confine ourselves to the scope of the questions that were actually asked. Did you have any like initial thoughts or gut reactions to this? Yeah, I mean, my initial thought was that I would love for the letter writer to sort of distinguish between jealousy and envy because it seems as though she's envious of the memories that her, I'm not sure how this person identifies, how this, uh, the memories and the experiences that this person is having um, without her. And that tells me that she too is looking to feel fulfilled in that same way. And I mean, it's a cliche for a reason, but you can't come to a relationship as half a person or an incomplete person expecting that relationship to fulfill you. So what I would love to see is this person instead of waiting by the phone or waiting by the door for them to come home from from partying, for her to go out and do that on her own so that she doesn't even have time to think about the gap that this person has left in her life for the odd few hours that they went to the bar. Yeah. I also think there's real room here for this letter writer to get really specific with their partner. You know, letter writer, you say that uh, I've torpedoed past relationships by expressing resentment and jealousy in an unhealthy way. I know I mentioned this again in the last letter, but I think, you know, jot it down. Like specifically, what were those unhealthy ways that you expressed it? Um, Write them down, list them, and then share it with your partner. You don't have to, you know, read every single detail off on it. But, you know, if there's a general sense of like, I became withholding, or I started, you know, keeping secrets or lying, or I picked fights or caused scenes or called someone 12 times in an hour, Um, you know, whatever they were, share them with your partner and say, I want to not do that again. Those are things that I've done in the past that I regret, and I want to be on the lookout for them. And then, you know, maybe talk about what are alternatives that you can do when those emotions come up. Um, You might also want to share this with a friend that you trust and speak to regularly and say, you know, not it's your job to watch me for signs of these things, but like, I just want to be, you know, accountable to somebody who's not my partner um, so that other people in my life know that this is something that I'm working on and trying to improve. And I I think often with that sort of thing, you know, uh, both getting a really concrete sense of what you do with those feelings and also sharing them with more than one other person goes a long way towards helping you, you know, see a little bit further in advance. Oh, it's coming up. Part of me wants to do the thing that I used to do and that ended so badly. And now 
I can, you know, find an alternative. I can divert that stream of nervous energy. Right. And what's so interesting to me is how jealousy seems to function differently in her romantic relationships versus her friendships. So I would like to see in what ways does she feel confident in her romantic relationships that she could then parlay into her friendships or vice versa, mm-hmm. right? Um, and kind of compare this relationship to other to other relationships or friendships that have this sort of unbridled trust and and contrast and compare, see what you can do differently. Yeah, I, I like that immensely. I also want to say, you know, to the letter writer, not to uh, sort of try to put a positive gloss on what has clearly been like a struggle for you, but I, I, I really just appreciated your candor when you were speaking of your own jealousy to say, like, it it's like this really ambitious appetite. Like, it's not even just that I get jealous of other people. I get jealous of other experiences. Like, there's a part of me that wants to be all things and all experiences, not only to my partner, but also to my friends. Like, I sort of want to be God and the world and every human being alive at the same time. And, you know, you can, I think, recognize ways in which that is an unachievable desire or, or ways mm-hmm. that it can get in the way of treating other people, like, respectfully. But I wonder if there's also ways that you can try to, you know, maybe jot down, like, what are ways in which that, you know, hunger, appetite, ambitiousness has has served you well? Like, are there ways in which that has made you more outgoing, more gregarious, um, more connected to other people, uh, you know, more, you know, focused, more goal-driven? Are there any good things about that that impulse Like, can you sort you? of, like, re- can you, like, redirect that energy and use it in a more positive way? Yeah, and, you know, knowing that we have a desire that is not only unsustainable but but damaging does not mean that we then have to think of that part of ourselves as monstrous or to be, you know, uh, dwindled down to nothing. You can think of that part of yourself as a sort of like unreasonable child you've been told to babysit for the afternoon. Right. Um, where it's like, this isn't like my kid. I don't have to worry about like, are you going to be okay growing up? Um, but I also have perspective uh, in a way that that part of me doesn't. Like the whole of me has more perspective than that aspect of me. And I can think of that part of me with fondness, but not necessarily indulgence and think like, all right, I got a kid throwing a tantrum over here. There's a part of me that says like, I want to be with my partner right now and my partner and everyone my partner is talking to and the party as a whole. Not going to be able to pull that off. Uh, yeah. What can I do with that desire? What can I? How can I treat that need uh, with like kindness, but also firmness? I think. Yeah, but I would also just love for this person to realize that jealousy is such a human trait. It's we're hardwired to be jealous as a preservation tactic. When we're jealous, it means there's this threat that's compromising our relationship that technically is supposed to lead to procreation and, you know, survival. So I would just want her to not beat herself up, not be hard on herself. And also while we're talking about ways to sort of mitigate the jealousy, um, I would love to understand more about where this jealousy is coming from and has she sort of addressed it um, in therapy? Uh, has she addressed it with her partner? Is it is the jealousy so all-encompassing that it's having a, a real effect on their, on their connection? Because I I have a tendency to be a very jealous person. And and the relationships in which I'm the most jealous are the ones that I know I should probably not be in. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that can be so useful to think about what, if any, specific fears underline this moment of jealousy. Is it that I'm going to be forgotten about? Is it that you know our previous moments of connection somehow mean less in light of this new excitement? Is it 
is it at all connected to ways in which you you treat me that I don't like? Um, I, I, I tend to get a little skeptical about um, like terms like hardwired just because I'm always like, oh, we are all hardwired this way. That's news <laughs> to me. Um, but I really, really take your point about jealousy being, you know, something that almost everyone will experience in some form or another at some point in a way that's really tied to, you know, basic desires to feel seen, loved, cared for, um, held, et cetera. And so, yeah, I, I think Procreated that's Procreated with. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, you, we all got that one wire that says procreate and uh, yeah. you got you to gotta hardwire that one. No pun intended. Um, yeah, yeah. So to just really also think about like, what am I afraid of in this moment? And what can I do with that fear? Like, is that a fear that is answerable? Or is that the sort of fear that's like, I'm worried that uh, I'm a forgettable person, in which case, you know, uh, not that you'll be able to solve that one overnight or in a single conversation, but, you know, what are what are ways that I can connect with a sense of worth about myself? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's really great that the letter writer and their partner historically have good communication and handle conflict well. That's a really good indicator. So I, I feel fairly confident that this letter writer is is going to be able to, to do good work um, around this. I think it's really just a case of like, get specific in advance. Don't wait until it happens to... Um, start thinking about what are the ways that I've torpedoed past relationships. Kind of my last thought is it might be useful, not necessarily in an immediate sense, but to think about the possibility of amends to some of those people. I don't mean to say letter writer, you should take this as an opportunity to call everyone you've ever you know hurt and say, I'm real sorry, I hurt your feelings. Here's like a big emotional uh, unloading session. Um, but to do a little you know imaginative work about, is there anybody that I can think fairly specifically and concretely of something that I did to hurt them? Is there a way that I can reach out and ask if they're interested in hearing an apology from me? Or would the better thing be to, to leave them all alone? But, um, you know, that, that might be coming up for you now is the sense of, man, you know, six years ago, I, I really regret how I treated my friend because I got jealous. And um, I want to maybe think about whether there's like an appropriate, respectful way to offer an apology that's not about like, forgive me, tell me I'm good, be my best friend again. But, um, you know, if, if that's coming up for you, there might be some unfinished business there that you could potentially pursue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my last thought is that it's so important to see how her partner reacts to her jealousy because they're there are those that are dismissive and there are those that are more understanding and take a more compassionate approach. Mm -hmm. And so if it's the former, I would say tread cautiously. If it's the latter, I mean, you can work on this together and I have faith. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great reminder to, to also like get a sense of how does my partner respond to a conversation about this? Because if it's just like, Oh, you get jealous sometimes. Fuck off. You know, that might be an indicator. Oh, we can swear uh, on this thing. You can always swear on podcasts is my, is my general assessment. But yes, please feel free. Hell yeah. So I, I have been, as as you know, thinking about the the subject of of imposter syndrome since since you mentioned the um, the title of of your book that came out earlier this year. And I'm so curious, like, do you have a sense in your own work or in your own writing of like what are some useful factors for determining whether or not someone is struggling with imposter syndrome and ought to, you know, try to foster a greater sense of confidence versus is this a real indicator of, you know, inexperience um, or lack of knowledge or a a good opportunity for me to try to like sit back or learn? Because I can really foresee situations where you could go charging in and say like, I'm getting rid of imposter syndrome and then just sort of 
trample over everyone in your path? Like, do you have a sense of what are good ways to sort of distinguish it from from other feelings that might resemble it? Sure. Well, well, the first thing I would say is that overcoming imposter syndrome doesn't necessarily mean trampling all over it like a stampede of elephants, (laughs) but but sitting with the fact that other people are experiencing it too. There's Mm. this phenomenon called pluralistic. Uh, ignorance, where we sort of believe that no one else is experiencing the same pain or holding on to the same belief that we do. And so we just don't talk about it. And we're in the dark about how other people are experiencing their own feelings of of self-doubt and and lack of self-worth. So even just knowing that you're not alone is so beneficial in helping sort of counteract these feelings. Uh, Misery really does love company. (laughs) And, and, and so overcoming imposter syndrome is also knowing that you don't know what sort of talents or lack thereof other people have, because we're constantly comparing ourselves. We're, we're constantly saying, oh, well, this person clearly worked hard to get to where they are, so they deserve to be there. But you really only know the part of the story that they tell. You don't know the truth. You really don't know the truth. And the same way that you don't know their truth. People don't know yours. And so people likewise are looking at you and feel as though you deserve to be in your position of power or to have garnered so much success. So it's really all about the the way that imposter syndrome manifests itself is, is being, is living in the dark about other people's experiences. And so just coming together and being open about it is the first step uh, towards collective healing. I think that's so useful because, you know, as you say, there's there's so many instances where, you know, that's not to say you can't learn many truths about somebody else or their experience, but you'll only ever know what somebody else tells you. And you'll always know- Their highlight reel. You're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe they'll share something vulnerable, but they're not necessarily going to like list every like mundane or embarrassing thing they've ever experienced, thought or felt. Right. Um, and, and that, you know, it, it can be so easy in so many different ways to sort of think, you know, I, I have a, a rich inner life and everyone else is just sort of like either like cruising ahead on full confidence mode uh, or, or mm-hmm. something else. Like they're just only ever feeling one thing at a time, like Tinkerbell and the old Peter Pan. Right. Yeah. And imposter syndrome, I think, is, is pretty useful because when we feel it most pronounced is when we're sort of out of our comfort zone. And if we were to disengage ourselves from from any sort of scenario in which we feel not good enough, then we would never be challenging ourselves. We would never grow. So I think it's imposter syndrome. It's kind of helpful because it allows you to sort of recognize, I feel a little bit out of my element. I feel like I could be doing better. Maybe this is an opportunity for growth. Maybe this can so somehow become my new normal. I can, I can one day sort of be able to sit with this and fake it till I make it until, until this becomes, like I said, my new normal. I'd also love to, this is on a much lighter note, but I'd love to know, since part of the title is Oddly Empowering uh, Lessons, what is the oddest thing that has ever uh, empowered you? Wow, the oddest thing that's ever empowered me. Gosh, um, I think coming to terms with weird bodily stuff. A lot of the book is characterized by weird things that have happened to my body, i.e. getting very infected mosquito bites at Jewish summer camp. a classic a experience. Classic. Having a miscarriage in my Lululemons. And so there are so many times where I felt like my body was against me. Uh, I'm not enough of a woman, but also why am I so intrigued by the way my body keeps challenging me? 
Um, and so it's very empowering to kind of see how my body is going to trick me next. Another way that, so what I like to talk about in the book is that imposter syndrome doesn't just manifest itself in professional settings, but also in our interpersonal relationships and in our own sort of struggles. For example, I'm in recovery for an eating disorder and it took me so long to even recognize that I was worthy of help because I felt that I didn't fit into the tip, the typical profile of how we understand eating disorder patients. I was never underweight. I never developed lanugo, a thin layer of, of, of peach fuzz coating my skin. But I was really fighting these demons and, and practicing a lot of self-harm behaviors, um, be it bulimia or starvation. And, and so it kind of helped me realize that, hey, just because you don't fit a certain sort of societal uh, understanding of something, it doesn't mean that you're not worthy of, of help or even being part of a certain community. And it was very powerful for me to understand that uh, the limitations surrounding the way we talk about eating disorders and how they alienate people of, of normal body weight, so to speak. I don't know if that's odd. It's kind of dark. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that kind of comes to mind when you share that um, is that sense of one of the ways that I think uh, in, in a sense of imposter syndrome can sort of fit into a cycle of like harming oneself is this sense of other people might deserve care or treatment, but I am uniquely bad. And because only I know how uniquely bad I am because, you know, I have a front row seat to my interior monologue. Um, what I need, in fact, is to be ceaselessly surveilled, regulated, punished, berated, um, and and to keep doing this. And it can be so, so, so frightening, I think, in those moments to think about actually thinking of oneself as like other people being worthy of care and respect um, and, and solidarity and support. Um, and, and so there's, you know, something very, very critical about letting go of, or, or at least reaching out in those moments of imposter syndrome, because as you, as you pointed out, it depends so much on mental and spiritual isolation. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're so quick to uh, compare our grief and our pain to other people, but no matter the intensity of your pain, it is valid and it is real and you do not deserve to live with it as chronically as I did. I think that's so useful. I think especially that idea of if you want to, you know, not not necessarily go compare every experience with everyone else in the sense of like trying to to rank them or say they're exactly the same, but to to think about things in terms of, you know, someone else experiences pain, I experience pain, looking for ways to connect without saying that makes us identical is a good thing and and often fosters new kinds of support and connection in a way that can be really, really useful. Yeah, absolutely. And we all experience imposter syndrome in different ways. And the more we sort of understand each other's, you know, manifestations of it, the more we can gener generally feel like we belong because there are so many different nuances and, and room. There's room for all of us, basically. There's room for all of us. Oh, Marissa, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and talk with us. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciated your thoughtfulness. And uh, I just want to remind readers that if they're interested in, uh, you know, learning a little bit more about different ways to relate to oneself and the fear that one might be an imposter, they can check out your book. If you wouldn't mind just plugging it one last time and telling us what it's called and where people can find it. 
Yeah, so it's called Pretty Weird, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome and Other Oddly Empowering Lessons. It's available on Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble. Uh, Obviously, shopping independent is a great way to keep your local economy afloat. Um, I probably missed a few others, but basically ever our books are sold. Fabulous. Thank you so much again for joining us and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I think when it comes to triggers, the goal is not to sufficiently walk on eggshells around them, but create new associations. And that's exactly what the therapy EMDR does. And basically what it does, it it just, it creates new associations in the brain so that there's less hyper arousal at the sign of the trigger. I just want her to know that this is not her responsibility to fix on her own. I hope that her partner is going to therapy faithfully uh, because she deserves to feel some bodily autonomy at the end of the day. I mean, I wouldn't blame her if some of this resentment does seep out into other facets of the relationship. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.